God for what He's done for the finished work of Christ. That's why believers exist. Exodus 17 is our text this morning. Exodus chapter 17. We've been walking through the uh, book of Exodus uh, since the beginning of the year. And we find ourselves this morning once again in the wilderness after the great salvation that God has given to His people through the plagues, Passover, and the Red Sea. Exodus chapter 17. Let's read this in its entirety this morning. All the congregation of the people of Israel moved on from the wilderness of sin by stages, according to the commandment of the Lord. And they camped at Rephidim, but there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore the people quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water to drink. And Moses said to them, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted there for water, and the people grumbled against Moses and said, Why did you bring us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? So Moses cried to the Lord, What shall I do with this people? They are almost ready to stone me. And the Lord said to Moses, Pass on before the people taking with you some of the elders of Israel, and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile, and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water shall come out of it, and the people will drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel, and he called the name of the place Massah and Meribah because of the quarreling of the people of Israel, and because they tested the Lord by saying, Is the Lord among us or not? Verse 8. Then Amalek came and fought with Israel at Rephidim. So Moses said to Joshua, Choose for us men and go out and fight with Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand on the top of the hill with the staff of God in my hand. So Joshua did as Moses told him and fought with Amalek, while Moses, Aaron, and Hur went up to the top of the hill. Whenever Moses held up his hand, Israel prevailed, and whenever he lowered his hand, Amalek prevailed. But Moses' hands grew weary, so they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat on it, while Aaron and Hur held up his hands, one on one side and the other on the other side, so his hands were steady until the going down of the sun. And Joshua overwhelmed Amalek and his people with the sword. Then the Lord said to Moses, Write this as a memorial in a book and recite it in the ears of Joshua that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. And Moses built an altar and called the name of it, The Lord is my banner, saying, A hand upon the throne of the Lord. The Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. There's many things that we can pull out of this text and apply into our lives today. But there's two truths in particular that I want to draw your attention to this morning. The first of those is that in this story, we see the difference between our testing of God and God's testing of us. We see the difference between our testing of God and God's testing of us. Last week, we saw that God 
makes his people trust and depend on him in the wilderness before he will lead them to the promised land. And we saw that when they found themselves in need, their first instinct was not to trust God, but was to complain against God. But God still proved himself faithful and provided for their physical needs through water and the quail and the manna from heaven. This morning in our text, they continue their journey through the wilderness and they camp at a location known as Rephidim, finding themselves again with no water in the wilderness. And they show us as we read through this text that they have failed to learn the lesson that God had already tried to teach them in the wilderness. They again begin to quarrel with their spiritual leader, Moses, demanding that he provide water for them and questioning why he brought them out of Egypt to kill them in the wilderness in the first place. In this text, this week, their complaints are even more forceful than they were in the story we looked at last week. They're even threatening to stone Moses to kill him if he does not provide for them what they need. Moses, though, knows that their complaint is not really against him. It's against God. Because it is really God who is leading them through the wilderness. It is God whose presence in the glory cloud is taking them from destination to destination and telling them exactly where they need to go. Moses is simply following God's lead, but he's being blamed for Israel's problem with God. And Israel has a problem with God's leadership because they don't like God's methods. They want the promised land, the blessing, and the inheritance right now in the present. They don't want to wait for it. They don't want it in the future. They don't want to have a hope for the future. They want it right now. They don't like that God's pathway to the promised land is through the wilderness where He will teach them to trust and depend on and obey Him before arriving at their final destination. But God has Israel in the wilderness, and He is testing them here to see if they will truly trust Him, if they will truly depend on Him and not themselves, if they are willing to surrender their own wills in order to obey God. In short, God is testing and sanctifying His people through trials. He's preparing them to live their life with a posture of leaning on Him and not themselves. And as God tests them for their good in the wilderness, Israel consistently fails the test. In fact, they not only fail God's good and gracious testing in the wilderness, but they respond themselves by putting God to the test. They threaten to stone Moses. They do this because they are setting up almost like this courtroom scene with Moses and God where they will serve as judge, jury, and executioner. They demand, God, you will provide for us. And then, and only then, only after you provide for us, will we consider if you're worth trusting and following. 
Moses, we will only follow your lead after you have provided for us. Their obedience and their trust in God are not based on God's faithfulness to them in the past, but instead it's only based on what God has done for them lately. Like a toddler making demands and threats to their mother and father who are literally keeping them alive each day. Israel is acting here as if they are in control of their relationship with God, when in reality, their entire existence is dependent on God. Without God, Israel is still in bondage under Pharaoh's thumb. They are heading back to Egypt as slaves instead of having been freed through the Red Sea. They are digging graves in the wilderness for their loved ones who have been malnourished. Without God, they are not saved, they are not redeemed, and they are not free. God has never left them. He has always provided for them, and yet... They still grumble. They still test Him. If I'm honest, if I'm God here, we might be tapping into some Sodom and Gomorrah action here just to teach some lessons. We might be saying, hey, don't forget what I've done. You've deliberately disobeyed me. No more time for grace. It's time for justice. But while God would be totally justified to bring judgment against His faithless, forgetful, unthankful, and demanding people, what does He do? He instead shows them undeserved grace. He calls Moses to go ahead of the people of Israel to take his shepherd's staff in his hand, the same staff that God had empowered him to use to prove that he was God's deliverer, to send the plagues, to split the Red Sea, this staff that represents the power of God. And going ahead of Israel, God was going to go and stand and dwell on top of a rock that Moses was going to go and strike with the staff of God. And upon striking the rock that God is dwelling on, life-giving, thirst-quenching water flows to God's people in the wilderness to satisfy and save them and to prove that God is faithful. God owes Israel nothing. But in grace, He provides. He passes every one of Israel's tests, something that they should never have been requiring of God in the first place. God's testing of His people is for their good. It's for their godliness. It doesn't always make sense to them in the moment, but He is for them and with them. But their testing of God shows their lack of faith and their lack of submission to Him. Moses names this location Massa and Meribah, which means testing and quarreling, meaning this. When Israel's spiritual leader Moses looks out at God's people Israel and he sees how they live, how they think, what they value, what he sees is a discontentment with God's provision and a doubting in God's promises. They have been redeemed from their bondage. They have been set free. They have been provided for every step of the way. God's presence is literally dwelling with them in the glory cloud just in the last month or two. 
But they quickly forgot God's power and His faithfulness. And they chose to live their lives grumbling at God instead of living with gratitude for His grace. Is that true for you today? Are you living your life grumbling and complaining and questioning God, daring to have the audacity to stand above God and question His goodness and His grace and His power? Is that you? Friends, a complaining Christian is an oxymoron. Whining and grumbling and discontentment and joylessness should not mark the lives of believers in Jesus Christ. I'm not saying the Christian life is always sunshine and rainbows. I'm not saying that we'll never go through seasons of testing or trials. We'll never face sorrow and hardship. Every one of us will. In fact, if you read God's Word, it promises it. It promises that life will be hard in a fallen, broken world. I'm not saying that that's not something that's going to happen. I'm not even saying that there's not an appropriate response of sorrow and even sadness and anger sometimes at situations. But what I'm trying to make clear is this, that the gospel of Jesus Christ The good news of Jesus that changes our hearts and changes our future and changes our standing before God empowers us to rejoice even in the midst of sorrow, to keep the faith even when facing trials. And the more that we understand the gospel and the more that we grow in our faith in Christ and what He's done for us, the more we will develop gospel in instincts that respond to situations with faith instead of with complaining and grumbling. When you've experienced God's grace in your life and you're living in dependence on Him and you're renewing your mind after God's Word and you're living for His glory and His kingdom, not for your hobbies, not for your family, not for your bank account, not for your kids, but you're living for Him because you recognize what He's done and that He is most important, then these gospel instincts will begin to come out in your life in both the good days and the bad. Gospel instincts will empower us to trust God even in the midst of the storm, to lean on God and not ourselves, to humbly acknowledge our inability and trust in His ability. But in order to develop these gospel instincts, we must dive deeper and deeper into the ocean of God's grace so that our eyes are constantly fixed on His goodness and His glory and His power and His purposes and His promises instead of the storm that we're living in. Gospel instincts help us to respond to circumstances in gospel-centered ways, but to develop those kinds of gospel instincts, we must not only be saved by the blood of Jesus, we must not only be empowered by the Holy Spirit, but With the power of Christ and with the power of the Spirit, we must commit ourselves to living out the gospel and diving deeper and deeper into it day by day, finding our identity in it and nothing else. The story of many people who grow up in church is they make a decision when they're young, which I believe God can save through that. 
but they never commit themselves to getting to know God, to reading His Word, to diving deeper into these things, so that when things in life happen that are hard, they don't have categories for how to process it, and instead they perpetually live in the wilderness grumbling at God because they have fallen a lot of times for a lie from the very get-go. A lot of times they have believed that if I just trust in Jesus, everything in my life is going to be easy. There will be no wilderness en route to the promised land. Everything's just going to be easy. And then something happens that they're not expecting. That's hard. And they get mad at God because God hasn't kept up His end of the bargain. You were supposed to make my life full of health and wealth and happiness and You're supposed to be for me and not against me, but I'm going through all this stuff. And God has never promised us that this life will be easy. He he doesn't promise that. He promises us resurrection from the dead. He promises us that our penalty for sin has been paid, that the power of the gospel will change us so that we don't have to say yes to sin, that we will live in His presence forever and ever, that He will use us as imperfect as we are. He promises us all of these glorious things, but when we have expectations on God because we're not familiar with His Word, then we don't have gospel instincts and we respond to things in life the way the world around us does. We don't listen to God's Word. We listen to voices in our lives and in the world that are antagonistic to God because they've got it figured out. How do we develop these kinds of gospel instincts? We have to remind ourselves each and every day of our true identity in Jesus Christ, never failing to reflect on what Jesus has done for us. We have to remind ourselves constantly of what He has done for us, how He picked us up and turned us around and took us from spiritual death and spiritual blindness to spiritual life and spiritual sight. We've got to remember His faithfulness to us in the past so that we can trust Him and keep the faith in the present and in the future. We've got to trust in Him and take Him at His word, not trusting in the worldly wisdom that thinks that it knows better than God. And friends, when you commit yourself to these kinds of things day after day after day after day through reading His Word, living in the presence of God's people, reminding yourself of what's true of you, you will develop a taste for godliness that will produce gospel instincts in your life. And with those instincts will come lives of joy and contentment and rest instead of lives that are marked by testing God and quarreling with Him. With these instincts, you'll remember that God is able to lovingly test and mold His children, but that putting God to the test is a fool's errand and is a lack of evidence or is an evidence of a lack of faith. We see in our text the difference between our testing of God and God's testing of us. But there's another thing that we see. We are called to faithfulness, but God will win the fight. We are called to faithfulness, but God will win the fight. What happens? God provides water for His people. And then as they still are in that location, the Amalekites, Esau's descendants from the book of Genesis, see Israel, see them in a vulnerable position and decide this is the time to attack while they're down. Joshua is introduced here. 
Moses' assistant and eventually his successor. He's here a military recruiter and a leader in the battle. And he's commanded to go find men to fight and to lead them into battle down in the battlefield while Moses will be up on the hill overlooking the battle with the staff of God in his hand. As the battle ensues, the text says Israel prevails and is winning the fight whenever Moses' hands are on and the staff of God are being held up in the air. But when he gets tired and his hands begin to descend, the enemies begin to prevail. But with the assistance of his brother Aaron and likely the chief elder of Israel named Hur, Moses' arms are held up through the battle until Israel eventually wins the victory, showing us that the men on the battlefield are fighting with all of their effort. But the only way that they will win is if God will fight for them. I could spend months preaching sermons on that theme and how to apply it. But I just want to point out a handful of ways that we can apply that truth that we are called to be faithful, but God will ultimately win the fight into our lives. One way that we can do that is we can focus on the fact that even though God is in control of the victory, the people still must obey God and fight. They believe that God is sovereign. They've seen Him win a victory for them at the Red Sea. But their belief in God's sovereignty and His power over all things does not lead them to just stand there and do nothing when the enemy is attacking. They don't just say, We've got God! We're just going to sit around and not do anything. They don't do that. What do they do? They faithfully take up arms and go and do what God has called them to do. God will win their, the victory, but He will win it through their imperfect efforts because God is not just in control of the ends, but also of the means that get us to those ends. The same thing's true for us. We are not called as believers today to fight holy wars. But we are called to be holy. And we are called to live on mission. And God alone can help us to say no to sin. God alone can empower us to win others to Christ. God alone can change our hearts and the hearts of the lost to love and desire Him. But we are nonetheless called to be faithful in putting in sanctified, intentional, disciplined, spirit-filled effort at killing our sin and sharing the gospel. Letting go and letting God does not work in sanctification and evangelism. Because God uses means. God uses means to bring about His ends. A belief in God's sovereignty should not lead us to a dangerous fatalism where we just say, God's going to take care of it so I don't have to do anything. If Joshua and the men don't fight the battle here, then Israel will be destroyed. Because God is going to use their imperfect efforts to bring about victories that He alone can win. And He does the same thing in our lives. Just because God wins the victory doesn't mean we're not called to be faithful. Another way to apply this passage, this story into our lives is to see that you cannot do what God calls you to do alone. Moses is called here by God to wield the staff of God as an instrument of war. But he doesn't have the endurance to do it alone. 
He's got to rely on others to shoulder the weight of the call God has placed on him. And the same thing's true today. Lone Ranger Christianity does not work. And it's not anywhere in the Bible. You need other believers to be praying for you, to be supporting you, to be serving you, to be speaking truth into your life, to be holding you accountable, to be partnering with you, and to be bearing your burdens. None of us can do this alone, which is why God saved a bunch of us, because we need each other. And that's why the local church is so important today and why it is so sad how low a view of the local church so many have today. Many today have neglected the church and have fallen for a version of Christianity where I can do Christian things but don't actually have to love the church. Listen, it's true. You can worship God in everything you do and everywhere that you go, not just in this church building. I agree with that wholeheartedly. But the New Testament version of Christianity, i.e. the real version of Christianity, the only version of Christianity, always includes believers worshiping with, faithfully committed to, and living life with believers in the local church. Always, 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 always. So so when you say, I love Jesus... But I don't love his people. I love Jesus, but I don't love the church. I love Jesus, but I love my weekend plans more than gathering with the saints to use my spiritual gifts to build up the body and sit under the word. When you say that, I'm thinking to myself, that's great. What version of Christianity are you talking about? Because the one that I'm reading about is in the Bible. it's, It's not here. You can't do it alone. You can't do it alone. Watching church on the internet, going to Christian conferences, listening to Christian radio, and personal Bible reading can all be helpful, but they can only take you so far because you, you can do each and every one of those things alone as a Lone Ranger Christian. But you need other believers who actually know you, the real you, the struggles that you face, and who are committed nevertheless to being there for you and to loving you and to coming alongside you, and to helping you keep your eyes on Jesus. And you need to be that in other believers' lives in real, meaningful ways. You need to know other believers beyond the surface so that you can invest in and minister to them. But what happens is, is we fear being vulnerable because when we're vulnerable, we might get hurt. So we keep people constantly at an arm's distance. We fear legitimate accountability from other people because we prefer a version of Christianity where we can do what we want and feel spiritual about it. Friends, the local church is called to be a family and a body. We need each other. Being a face in the crowd but not a functioning part of the body of Christ is not God's call for the believer today or the example found in the Scripture. Moses here needs others to help him do what God has called him to do. And the same thing is true for us today. Another way that we can apply this story into our lives today is to think about the power of prayer. The power of prayer. God can do more in a millisecond than all of us collectively could do in all of eternity. God can do more with His little pinky finger than all of us could do with all of our power. Why? Because He's God. 
We must work hard. We must be faithful. But to work hard and be faithful without praying for God's aid and for His will to be done and for Him to empower our imperfect efforts, that is lunacy. It's like having a secret weapon that can destroy all your enemies but never pulling it out when you're being destroyed by your enemies. It's like coaching elementary basketball and having a seven-foot-tall kid on your team who is talented and you sit him on the bench the whole time while your team gets crushed by your opponents. It's stupid. Prayerlessness is stupid. It's stupidity. And yet, even though we know that in our heads, how often in our self-sufficiency and pride do we live lives as prayerless Christians? This story shows us that we must be faithful. It shows us that we can't live our lives that God's called us to alone. And it shows us, I believe, the importance of leaning on God in prayer. But the most important application of this story to our lives is to remember that God does not just win the victory for Israel in Exodus 17, but He's done it for us as well. Our final victory is only possible because God has already won the victory for us. Joshua and Israel are fighting a losing battle out on the battlefield, facing an overpowering enemy, but God wins the victory for them as Moses' hands that are wielding the staff of God are held up by his friends. And similarly today, with a sinful nature inside of us, a fallen world influencing us, a satanic enemy accusing us, and a holy God standing against us, we are fighting a losing battle against an overpowering and unbeatable enemy. But victory is made possible for us, not by Moses' hands being lifted by his friends on the hill at Rephidim, but by Jesus. Jesus' hands being lifted by Roman nails on the cross of Calvary. Jesus Christ lived the life that we fail to live, bore the wrath that we deserve, silences the accusations that we have earned, and covers the same that we should bear in our place as our substitute. He wins the victory. We enjoy the spoils. And as He finishes this mission, and as His lifeless body is hanging on the cross, John tells us that the Roman guards, to ensure He is dead, pierce His side... And flowing out of his body comes what? Both blood and water. Why? Because Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10 that the rock that was struck at Rephidim in Exodus 17 to provide life-giving water to Israel was just like Jesus Christ who was struck to provide salvation for us. Israel deserved to be struck by God for their grumbling, but God stood on a rock and commanded Moses to strike him instead of his people. And we, in our sin, deserve to be struck by God for our rebellion and sin, but we have a Savior who is pierced for our transgressions. Jesus wins our salvation by being struck in our place. Friends, that is the hope 
of the gospel. And believing that good news and surrendering to that resurrected King Jesus, that is the only way to have true and final victory over sin and death and hell and Satan. We are called to be faithful. We are called to be faith-filled. But Jesus' faithfulness is our only hope and victory. Friends, if you're here this morning and you know Jesus Christ and you're still on the long journey of sanctification through the wilderness, I pray that you'll join me in responding to Jesus this morning. If you find yourself at a place in life where you lack gospel instincts, you find yourself constantly grumbling at God, if you find yourself falling into the dangerous trap of fatalism, if you're operating as a lone ranger Christian, or if you find yourself depending on you instead of God through prayer, this morning run to Jesus, repent of your sin, remember who He is and what He's done, and ask Him to transform and empower you by His grace to be faithful all your days. And if you're here this morning and you haven't believed the good news of Jesus and surrendered to Him, today can be the day of salvation. Mercy and grace are offered to you on the other side of repentance and faith in the finished work of Christ. If you don't know Him this morning and you feel your need, I pray that you will come and respond, that you'll repent and believe. If you find yourself living life upset at God for not keeping promises to you that He never made to you, trusting in your own power and might to make sense of this life and be faithful. Know this. No matter how hard your heart is, no matter what you've went through, no matter what evils you've done, God's grace is greater than our sin. And He calls us to come home. He calls us to run to Him, trusting not in ourselves and our work, but trusting in His grace. I pray that you'll join me in responding together to our gracious God this morning. Father God, we thank You for Your mercy and grace. We acknowledge, Lord, that it is undeserved. God, my prayer, my prayer right now, Lord, is that Your Word will do the work. God, clever stories and hollering in a pulpit doesn't change people's hearts. Your word and the power of the gospel does. God, I pray that you will be at work. God, that you'll help us to respond in the way that you lead us to. God, that you'll give rest to the restless. That you'll give joy to the joyless. That you'll give hope to the hopeless. Lord, that you will bind up the wounds and comfort the mourning and grieving. God, that you will help us to live lives of dependence on you, faith in you, living for you and not ourselves. God, take our lives and help us to use all that you've given us for you. God, whatever anyone's need is this morning, I pray that you'll lead us to respond as we close and as we sing. In Christ's name I pray. Amen.